0: Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software through discussions with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Sudhir Reddy, who is the VP of Engineering at Chef, a progress company. Sudhir joins us via Seattle, Washington in the United States. So, dear Reddy, we're so glad to have you on Maintainable. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Robbie. It's really good to be here on this rainy, nice Seattle day. And
0: I'm only a couple hours south of you, and it's blue skies and sunny today. So, we got that going for us.
1: Uh, don't rub it in. Don't rub it in.
0: <laughs> so, as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, maintainable software?
1: Yeah, you know, when we talk about maintainable software, I have two categories of things that I think about. One is the maintainability of the software, the code that you write, and what's inside of the code, and how maintainable is that. And the second aspect of it is the software, the whole piece of software as a whole itself, and how maintainable is that. And, you know, I have this saying of the minute you write your code, it has become legacy already. And I call it legacy debt, as in we, in the software industry, we release so many things and very quickly we'll find that there are pieces of software that customers use and pieces that customers don't use. And the challenge for a lot of uh, my engineering teams, as well as broadly in the, in the industry, is all these pieces of code, whether they're whole software or little lines of code, whether they're maintainable or necessary over time, right? And, and making sure that we uh, are taking good care of all of those.
0: You know, it's interesting the this concept of legacy debt, and then also you mentioned that there's areas of the code where customers may or may not be using that area. You know, of the of an application that relies on that piece of code. I know a lot of businesses like have an idea or a hypothesis about well, if we build out this new feature. We're, we're hoping this will resonate with our users or our customers or whatever the, the situation is. And then that doesn't always pan out to reality. And usually there's this long product backlog of all these other things you want to release that, that they're theory. And then, you know, you hear a lot of stories about how there's a lot of organizations were delivering things, but then is that there's not necessarily always maybe the infrastructure or the people in place to really monitor whether or not those things are being used and whether or not some of those things could be pulled out at some point. Or maybe there's always the, the, this allure of having more checkboxes on your feature list of things. Like, look at all the things that this includes. Yet, if you actually went and looked at it, maybe like 30% of these things are actually used by our users. But then, Or you have the scenarios where there's maybe one customer that really heavily relies on that one feature. Developers don't always know that. What's been your experience in that kind
1: of capacity? Exactly. And, um, you know, uh, where I come from, Chef and uh, now Progress, one of the things that uh, being an open source community, what happens is a lot of people take our source code and they have a little thing that they want to do or change. Or in a, in some cases, there's little tools that they want to write and submit back into our open source uh, community so that everyone can benefit. And oftentimes... Uh, in a lot of cases, that is very useful for everyone, and oftentimes it 's not and that 's the only person or the only organization that needs that and that very quickly becomes uh, not only legacy but also um, drags everyone down in terms of having to maintain that code and having to keep that code and In addition, what I see and our customers are mainly i t operators and app ops and security ops folks, and what they have in their um, in the app ops world, um, if you take an example. What they have is they have all of these legacy applications that over time have built up and they're mission critical to their organizations or one group in their organization and they need to maintain that while the rest of their organization is trying to figure out how do I get to Kubernetes, how do I get to the cloud side of things and and all of that. And uh, I have a couple of uh, great uh, ideas and great tools that we use and uh, we actually have a tool that helps uh, our customers with that. So I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit.
0: Interesting. You know, working with my own open source projects and stuff as well, I have one project where where the community has contributed several hundred plugins. And I was having a conversation with a, another one of my maintainers recently. Um, I have a project called oh Shell. And we were talking about like, well, when do we decide to stop incorporating new plugins? How do we decide whether or not it's a, because for a long time I was like, well, it seems to work I'm not gonna maybe use it, but I'll 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 bring it in. We'll bring it in. Seems to be like it's gonna be useful for this person. Cool, great. More the merrier. And then you know, hundreds plugins later, you're like, oh, what have we done? We've now have this. We have all we have all these plugins, which seems great. You have this huge checklist of like, look at all these different plugins you can use. That's maybe really overwhelming to some degree too, but we're like, well, what is the, do we need to come up with a new process for when we decide that we're going to uh, approve in bringing in a new plugin? What, what would the metrics be there? Or do we need to have a certain number of people vote seeing that they would use it? And then will they actually use it is another question is like a whole not like, there's no way to know how people are always using your open source projects when, you know, it's freely available and such. So, so yeah, I, I have a project that has a legacy debt and I'm, we're wary of like removing things where I'm like, oh, know, people might be using this. I have no way to prove it one way or another. There's no monitoring in the tool. There's nothing, you know. There's nothing really helping indicate that. So, but it's also like this interesting world of open source where it's like, well, fine, it's a free for all to some but it does make messes. And I think if it were to ever become a more of a productized thing, then I would say like, oh my gosh, we have this huge problem. So we can never do that. So. Chef has its own, I'm sure, background in that sort of capacity. How long have you been kind of part of the the Chef ecosystem now?
1: I'm a happy user of all my Z-Shell. I don't know if I'm using the plugins that you have, but uh, it's a a great product. Um, So coming to the open source and community contributions and things, right? Just to give you an example of the scale of some of what we deal with, we have over 500 GitHub repos that have been, over time, have been built up on the central tenet of uh, Chef and how it operates, or Habitat, which is another product, or the compliance side of things. Surrounding all of it, there's these tool sets and content and things that customers have built or open source contributors have built, which is, you know, and maintaining 500 repos is a big burden on a a company as well as on the open source community. So one of the learnings there is, uh, to your example of what you're doing with OMIV Shell, we have a governance now, and we have a very... Uh, well-defined, um, both an acceptance into open source, into the main mainline code base, as well as a very thought-through and rigorous EOL program. So where something might have been an extremely important part of the portfolio five years ago, it's no longer relevant. So we have to go through the motions of taking it out of the system. So we unburden the entire system from having to maintain that. And we've some, seen some good successes. And as uh, you, you, your example was great, right? Of There's one customer who's using it, and it's super important to them that we have that continue. And in those cases, we have to make the right accommodations. But oftentimes, it's also the case where the persons or the teams or the companies that are using it are no longer around. We're just making the assumption that they are, and it's important to them, et cetera. So it's that fine balance that we, that we have to find in that.
0: Given that Chef is, you know, so much of that is an open source component, how have you get some sort of metrics of usage around certain things where if you're exploring end of life in something that you can make that clear to people? Or is it the sort of thing where if there's like new versions coming out you can kind of like put in the usual maybe deprecation or warnings about end of life on that but if they're installing a version that was already released or they're leaning on it then they may maybe that's fine maybe they can just keep working off that until they try to bump it up at some point what's what's been kind of some tactics you've seen work there
1: yeah it's a great question we have a few arrows in the quiver there uh One is just plain communication of of trying to get information from our users and our c- customers both from telemetry within the product, which sometimes you know in open source is hard to put telemetry in because of it is open source and our users don't like when data comes back to a central system. We get telemetry as well as just by polling our our users et cetera We get information back on how widespread the use is and The second uh, communication factor is just letting people know that, hey, there's deprecations going on in the product, in our website, and uh, uh, letting our community know that. And when they come back uh, and say, hey, we need that for this this, and this reason, we then evaluate that on, is that a valid enough reason for us to keep it? The other thing uh, in that same bucket that I want to talk about is not just deprecations of the entire tools, but deprecations of feature sets within, right? So a lot of times, what we do is we deprecate features uh, and figure out. Obviously, the ideal path is give our customers and our users a path to upgrade to the latest version. And in some cases, they're breaking changes and they can't. So what we've been doing and spending a lot of time and and in our conference uh, this year, I had a keynote that we where we talked about this is build an analysis tool along with your product where any of the older versions, if there's upgrades that need to happen, and we can take care of it automatically, we will do that. At the press of a button with the user's permission, we upgrade that. And and a lot of times we're talking about customer written code. That's what this is. We deprecate that and we tell them we can upgrade it for you automatically. And in the few cases where we have to do it manually, we tell you where the changes are and what the changes from and to that you need to make. So it makes it a real smooth process. In terms of the success factor for that, we have seen our customers who used to have months-long projects and upgrades. If they want to go from an older version to a newer version, it used to take them three or four months of projects to do. And now we've literally condensed that down to minutes and hours of, uh, of work that they have to do to do that. So there's a great, um, I want to call that a pattern that I, I've learned in my career, and I think we should, there should be more of that in the industry.
0: I'm assuming in that sort of scenario, like with limited knowledge I have of everything that Chef and all the tools can use, but like cookbooks and things like that, I'm assuming like if you have a, if you're leaning on an older version of a cookbook that has like an older version, are there, there's some tools now that will automatically help update your cookbook to like change syntax and stuff for you and then to some reasonable level of
1: like success? That is exactly what we do. And cookbooks was the example I was referring to is a lot of times customers have cookbooks that they've written. Their entire teams have spent years writing those cookbooks. And when we release a new version, we have some changes, some deprecations, et cetera. And what we do is we go analyze your cookbooks and look at all the things that we have changed and what needs to change. And in a lot of cases we do it automatically. There are some breaking changes that you cannot automatically fix, or there's some logic there we cannot imagine what was in there, so we, we give them uh, hints. In terms of the success rate, um, like I said, the time to actually doing upgrades has gone down, and the metric I use for it is how often do customers upgrade from older versions to newer versions? One of the biggest barriers or hurdles they have to overcome is that upgrade process of books moving from one version to another, and we're seeing after we release that, it's like it's gone up quite a bit in terms of customers coming to the newer versions. And and, so, and anecdotally, we've got a lot of kudos on that.
0: That's that's great. I don't do a lot of work with Chef stuff that often. There's a couple of hosting environments where we use it with some of our our clients have like Ruby on Rails applications, like say using with Engine Yard as an example where there's Chef involved there. What I, we do, what I don't know is like I haven't seen scenarios where like there's automated testing of the cookbooks in a way. And so our... Is that something that's kind of a pattern that you've seen in the community that they can kind of validate that the, the new cookbooks are going to have the same sort of impact on a server environment as you expect it to?
1: Absolutely, so all of that, um, so the the part I'm talking about so far has been about the actual cookbooks and the process you go to upgrade them, et cetera. Now, beyond that, all of our customers or, or a vast majority of our customers and users actually have a CI and a CD pipeline associated with that. So as they, as they merge their changes in, uh, obviously it's going through a CI pipeline, they're going to stand it up in a pre-prod or a test environment, they're going to test all of the things, and then it goes into production. So all of that still needs to stay in place because obviously they want to catch any issues they want early on, but, um, but we've made that process so much simpler for our users.
0: We'll be back with our interview with Sudhir in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. Hi, I wanted to thank you, yes you, for making time to listen to Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations remotely valuable, please consider sharing a link right now on social media. Maybe even consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. I appreciate all the reviews, good, bad, whatever. Thank you. Also, do you know someone that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? shoot me an email to robbie with a y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Sudhir Reddy. You know, one of the things that we've, we've been working with over the last few years with, like, say, helping companies and organizations with their upgrades of, like, Ruby on Rails, things like that, is, like, doing things like dual booting where we can have things kind of show how it's working on the current version that they're running against versus like the next version and see is the test suite still passing in, par- in parallel. And so as they're working on new features, you can keep that new version working and kind of in parallel just to kind of kind of have like a sanity check there, I suppose. I'm curious if there's things now with like what Chef's doing where they're able to automate like what would it look like if you did, but there's a new version of Chef. Whatever and like we're now showing you like here's an automated, mated GitHub pull request for like the new version and showing you that it's all good so you don't have to do anything more except for like that oh, that looks good merge.
1: Yeah, you. I think you just described uh, our user scenario perfectly in uh, in what we're doing there. One of the other things I I do want to touch upon is how, how we help our customers actually take applications whole applications you referral to um, Ruby on Rails um, triggered this thought in me, is. Not only do customers or users of our systems have their chef cookbooks and their code that they need to maintain, but in a lot of cases, there's legacy applications that are in-house. So think of a, a large IT organization or an app ops, as we call them these days, because they're thinking of applications as their business value that they need to deliver to their customers. A lot of these companies have a ton of old legacy applications that they don't know what to do with as in they're mission critical, they have to be kept alive, they have to keep be upgraded on, on things. But the original people who had all the knowledge of these applications are gone now, and they don't uh, have. And at the same time, to add another moving part to it, they have these um, hybrid environments where the entire company is looking to move to the cloud and containers and Kubernetes as a as a thing. And um, we've seen that. We're actually seeing some of that in in our organization right now where we have applications that we've built, for in-house use as well as for our customers' benefit, um, that we have to either figure out how to maintain them on on bare metal and VMs, or move them to the modern cloud architecture that we have. So th- that's a great opportunity where, we're, where legacy debt, as I call it, uh, plays a key role in what we're doing as well.
0: And and so in in those types of scenarios, are you often like maybe needing to keep things on bare metal, or even encountered that last year where there was a client where they had. A Ruby on Rails applications is literally running on uh, an old Apple Mac on a desktop somewhere and I'm like oh that's our internal app that we use and everybody's working off that I'm like oh that's but they want to move to the cloud I'm like this is going to be way more complicated because it's actually connected to the printer and how, you know so there's like some other things we need to figure out like with that and um but anyways the you know I think what's so interesting about uh, we, in like the area that you're working in, you're getting you're seeing a lot of these types of things where like my company comes in and helps those types of companies where they have that specific technology stack and like, hey, we have this old Rails app; those developers don't work here anymore. We need to keep it running because it's still needed, but it's not like say the core part of our business these days. So, can you come in and help us like stabilize that or help us find some people to do that long term? And so if we do that, and then, um, and what Chef's doing is like helping provide the tools for teams like us to build and move that. Infrastructure elsewhere, yeah. So if anyone's listening, that's like has a Rails app, you know, get in touch with us. But also, Chef, obviously, go talk to the folks over at Chef. You know, in this whole idea around in you know, technical debt, you know, given the, how long you've been in the industry now, have you noticed any distinguishable difference by how, say, a senior engineer might think and talk about technical debt versus say how a junior or mid-level
1: engineer might? Yeah, yeah. There's an interesting trend that I I can think of. If you look at what in general, how folks approach technical debt, it's one of two or three different forms. One is, I don't want to touch this thing because I'm afraid I'll break something. And I think the more senior you get in your in your career, you have more confidence that you can go in and you can write the right set of tests around it, you can write the right set of things to make that a successful thing. Uh, I think if if you want me to characterize that in one word, it would be confidence. Right, in, in being able to go in and I think organizations such as yourself who have experience with that will, will uh, be able to say that so the second uh, way somebody approaches this is I'm going to leave that alone I'm going to write my own code to do that and someday I will replace that and again that comes with the dangers of that become apparent as you progress in your career On now you're creating a second thing that does the same thing and is now going to become legacy three years from now or tech debt three years from now And the the third approach is really what I think is the right uh, way to look at it is, is this functionality or is this piece really required in what we're looking to do and start your evaluation from there, right? Which is oftentimes I see some of my architects and some of the more um, principal engineers come up with those thoughts on um, questioning what the customer or the business value of, of keeping that around is and what the sacrifices will make of removing that from the From the portfolio so i keep going back and i you can tell i'm a little passionate about this is in legacy debt on just having things around that you no longer need just because you in your imagination or in or there's one customer who needs it uh, and trying to figure out the right paths to eliminate that from so less code is better in that sense
0: yeah yeah have you had experiences in previous positions where you were born in a tech environment so much in the same way that you felt like there was a, a, a big shift there for you? Like to see how that was like, oh, this is much different. And now we can have these conversations at a higher level. Um, like I'm assuming, like say, a CEO at Chef knows what technical debt is at a certain level where some other companies are like, I don't know what that means exactly.
1: Yeah. Uh, so my background by training, I'm a computer scientist, but also my minor was in robotics and I first, my career started with a robotics company and, and I was doing in that. And that is a, a situation that you're describing where their central or their business value as they think about it. And this was, I'm dating myself, but, um, in the early 2000s and their notion of software and debt, et cetera, is a secondary concern to the, they were building Silicon wafers. So, um, The conversation there is really very different from a technology-centric company, or at least it was at the time, and I'll tell you why I say that. in a minute, but the conversations there are really just about keeping the lights on, keeping the thing going, keep that robot moving in the direction that it needs to, and that. And the, and the tendency there is to continue building on top of what you have and fixing those minor things that you need to fix, etc. And very quickly, I realized at the time, as well as I think the industry is realizing, is re looking at that and going, even if First of all, I don't think there's any company left anymore that cannot call itself a technology company, right? Every company is a technology company these days. And as part of that software and whether it's software that you're building in-house or whether it's software that you're buying from another vendor, etc., that becomes a key part of the decision-making process. From that day to now, I have seen that industry evolve to where they think of themselves as a digital company as opposed to a uh, moving robots around company, right? Uh, so uh, the notion of it, uh, it being slightly different in the technology company, I think the thinking process is different, but in the end, pr- kinds of problems we're dealing with are exactly the same thing.
0: I can see some, a lot of truth to that. And I'm also thinking about, there's like some companies where it's like, they're, they're, they're starting to get into like producing software as being part of their thing, where they might've historically just outsourced like, Hey, we need to build this app but, and we we they don't see like it necessarily needing to be a, around in a couple of years. It's more like we have this thing we want to do for the next year. It's like campaign based software development in a way, but it it's, it is interesting.
1: Robbie, if I can actually uh, for those folks who who have that situation where they're starting to think about technology and and becoming a technology company or a digital company, etc. That's the use case I was talking about earlier. In there's all these applications that don't necessarily need to be changed. They need to be managed, as in they need to be upgraded, etc., and brought to your newer um, environments, or you're moving from bare metal to VMs, maybe not not to the cloud, um, and all of that. And that's where I was talking about this technology called Habitat that we have at Chef that imagine a world where you have a legacy application that's built on, let's say, IIS and .NET that's running on your Windows servers, and now you want to virtualize that, right? And what we do, Habitat does, is it has the capability to take that application, figure out all of the dependencies, all the way down to the operating system level that that you have in that piece of software, and then come up with a script that will package that application up and then what you can do is put that into your CI pipeline. So given the script and given your application, what it does is it packages an immutable object for you that you can then go deploy as you are today on your bare metal, and also with the same description of what the dependencies and the application and the configuration, deploy it on VM, VMs as well. And to boot, you can then say generate a container out of this for me, and you can just go to generate a container and run it in your Kubernetes clusters. Out there, so that's the help for those companies where they're starting to figure out what to do with the newer technology world, etc. There's a lot of uh, a lot of tools out there, and Habitat happens to be one of the tools that they can leverage on that.
0: Interesting, yeah, I had not actually heard of that one yet, and I'll have to check that out because we we get called in sometimes where like recently Heroku, as an example. Uh, End of life to one of their stacks, and which meant that a number of companies were like, we haven't needed anything to change in our Ruby on Rails application in several years, and now they know that the next time they try to deploy, it it will not spin up. They're like, oh no, what do we do? And we're like, well, an upgrade might not be feasible right now, and they don't really want to spend the time and money on doing that. And they're like, it's like we have three people using it like four times a year, and we're like, okay, so what can we do here? Like, what are our options? And it's usually like. How do we go find an older Linux stack distribution? We're going to go spin it up, get all the gems installed from that specific time and place, um, try to lock it down in that space, lock down the versions because of security, things like that. Make sure it's like there's we're insulating any potential threats, given that, you know, there's haven't been security patches applied in years. So knowing that there's tools out there to maybe help out with some of that, that definitely sounds interesting. Like even as as, as an example, I have an old Ruby on Rails-based blog that I built 15, 14, 15 years ago running. That's an old Linux distro distro running on an EC2 thing that somehow still keeps working. Um, I have to reboot it every once in a while, but it's like, it's just up there and it's, it's like, like Rails 1. It's my little secret there.
1: Along this way, what you can also weave in is our compliance side of things where you can make sure that as you're going from that legacy application or a fully newly built application, you're packaging that up and deploying in various places. They all have different compliance scenarios uh, and security stances that you take. Uh, You can encode all of that in in our Inspect product and and encode that and say all the way from code to production, make sure that this is compliant to my rule and to what I want to accomplish. So that um, side of things as well, we have covered.
0: Nice. We'll definitely include some links to that in the show notes for, for those listening as well. And I want to talk a little bit about process for a bit in particular with regard to technical debt. What are some effective ways that you've seen teams organize maintenance and refactoring type tasks? Or is it like, do you recommend that like engineers, every time there's like a, I think this might be technical debt or we need to clean this up, like go create an issue for that or put that in the board somewhere. Or do you find that to be an ineffective way to kind of approach that and like,
1: yeah that, that that's a great question so um and this is I think very typical in the industry part of our every sprint that our teams go through and every um, every period that they release a piece of software twenty five percent of that is allocated to technical debt reduction, whether that is refactoring code or whether that is eliminating a piece of code or whether that is just rethinking how that algorithm could be written or uh, or optimizing it et etc that is a set of time that is just dedicated to the engineers to be able to go and do that. In addition, every now and then we come across a project that we have to take up in terms of this is going to take us three months to do what it needs to be done and things. What we do there in terms of processes, engineers are free to come and propose that. And we have a couple of guidelines that we use for that. One is, is this absolutely necessary now? As in, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. Uh, That's one. And second is, Is it mission critical for our customers? Does it make our customers' lives better by going and doing that and in what way? If those are satisfied and it feels like the right technical thing to do, then we do go and dedicate the time and energy to to go do that. The third process, and being an open source, I have to talk about how our community contributes to that as well. A lot of times our great community contributors just come in and say, I refactored this code, here's a PR, Um, go merge it in. And we we spend time looking at those and saying, uh, you know, if this is the right thing, then we we redo our tests, we do the things we need to do, and all those PRs come with tests. But in addition, we have integration tests and things. Um, We look at all those and and get them in there as well. So it's really, I think, the bottom line there is giving the engineers freedom and the time to be able to go think about these things and be able to go and do them when the right time comes. And what better than to just give them that, allocated time that they can say, I'm not working on a new customer feature during this 25%. I'm just gonna fix. And if they don't use it, they're free to use that to go build features for our customers or or new things for our customers.
0: You know, I'm curious, uh is you know if it, those scenarios where people on your team might put together a proposal for a bigger thing and you run through those checklists of things of like in some ways I think I kind of already know the answer. You know, if you're if it's not mission critical or it's maybe not necessarily if it ain't broke, don't fix it necessarily. But if there's been themes of like murmurs amongst your teams or people are like, ah, we really need to deal with this at some point and it's decided to, that you're not gonna deal with it right now because you decided it's not bad enough right now. How do you communicate that out to the the wider team?
1: The key there is to make sure that you're very transparent and the reasoning for your decision making is is known to the team. And uh, even more is solicit their input on why, sort of, if I make a stance of we shouldn't be doing this now, what would your counter be, right? And solicit there, and that uh, that is all about communication. And here is another anecdote, I, th- I guess, is or or just an example, right? Oftentimes, the way it manifests itself that you need to go pay attention to it is when things are slowing down. Something that you think should have taken take anywhere from a day to a week or whatever. Is now taking a month for someone to do? there's an indication there that the underlying problem, may be the tech debt that uh, that hasn't been tackled either because we haven't taken the time to look at it or I have said no, and it's actually starting to cause problems in the product uh, and then we have to we have to reevaluate those and, and look at those.
0: What sort of metrics is, are your engineering teams evaluating or keeping an eye on?
1: I think the highest level metric that we look at is that 25% of the time on tech debt reduction that we look at. And I have to confess, we're probably not perfect at measuring and looking at that and and saying that, but we often look at, are you spending 25% of your time on reducing tech debt? And if not, is it because there isn't tech debt left or is it because we haven't gone deep enough or we're not spending the time discovering these things? That is the highest level metric that we look at others it's not metric driven it's more you know anecdotal incidental on you find that the teams are slowing down or the teams are feeling the the weight of something and you you have to step in and that's that's where smart leadership comes in too in being able to detect that look at the body language look at of the team and look at what's going on there and um, and try to step in and help hi there do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus.
0: Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. Do you think that there's a, or believe there's a strong correlation between healthy code and healthy teams?
1: I do think so. I think that's that weight of the features that I was talking about, right? At the moment you start looking at the productivity of the team, not in terms of lines of code again, but in terms of, um, in terms of how the, the team's feeling and how the teams, how long teams are taking to come up with something that you otherwise, give, all else being equal, would have been quicker. Then you start realizing that something is dragging things down. And that oftentimes comes down to either there's not proper fo- focus on the thing that needs to be done or there's something holding things back, such as tech debt uh, or, or, or legacy debt.
0: Just a couple of quick last questions for you. I want to see if we can get some advice for those listening. So let's imagine that there's a software developer listening to this episode and they find themselves working on a code base where the original developers are no longer part of it. They're struggling to figure out how to prioritize what they consider to be a mountain of technical debt due to a lack of documentation and or a reliable test suite. They're feeling a touch overwhelmed on where to start. What advice would you offer them on how to best improve their situation outside of, say, looking for a new job? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well that's always an option but uh, hopefully not for this uh, reason. The advice I would give them is first look at what it is that you're looking to do and what the value of doing that is and evaluate whether going and touching that piece of code and doing something with that is the right thing and and in a, I ha- I have to accept that in a lot of cases that's not even an option. But if you do have that option, look at look at that, right, or whether there's some modern tool that you can go and get off the shelf that does the same thing you used to do. If refactoring or, or uh, going into that code is the only one that you have, think of tests first, test-driven development. Write all the tests you need to because it is code that nobody has touched in a while or the, you've lost the knowledge on that code base. Write the tests on what its current behavior is or what your desired behavior is and then go into into looking at what you can do to to refactor that code, and third is, don't be afraid to slash and burn right Oftentimes you'll see that there's some little nuance to the code that was written there because to to cover up for a bug in the in the previous versions or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, feel free to question that and feel free to remove that whole section if if you see in, uh, in that code, and you have a good way to back it up with your tests that you just wrote. So, so you know that it'll still work. So,
0: Have you found yourself in a scenario or seen this happen amongst teams that you've been part of where someone new to an environment will be like, well, there's no tests, automated tests yet, but I'd like to start introducing them. But maybe some of the other developers don't really see the value in it yet, and so there's maybe a disagreement of whether or not they should start doing that or the engineers may be asking the product owner, like, hey, can we get some time to – introduce some automated testing into this as well and the product owner is like i don't even know what that means maybe sometime i don't know what advice would you offer people in those types of situations and like they feel like they want to start doing it but they're not really getting the uh the green light from anyone
1: yeah i've seen that happen and uh, i think that's a very real scenario in a lot of cases and i think this is where the engineers and the engineering leadership needs to step in and be very firm about the value of tests and and making sure that It's the price you pay now for long-term success and maintainability of code and things, as opposed to uh, everything comes to a standstill at some point, and then you you backtrack it. Uh, The the advice I would give them is convince your product owner or whoever is driving the decisions there that a bug leaked to a customer oftentimes is 700% more expensive than a bug that you can fix on the first day. Test-driven development. Uh, it's sometimes used as a cliche or a catchword but it is uh, you cannot overemphasize the importance of that so convince whoever is making the decision that you need to do that
0: that's some good some good advice there and the thing that I always think about is like whenever i have when i have those conversations with people or i people are asking me for advice on that it's always like well are those other developers on the team not testing the code you know, is who's like, do they just release things? Like it is being tested. Like it is testing. What if we could automate that so we don't have to manually do it every time. And so oftentimes I think it's just more of like, there's not existing patterns in place or something for people to see like, Oh, this is how you do it. So, so if you can be for those listening, if you can be that person that sets out and like shows a, like a template of what that could look like on a small piece, like, look, this is like, couple of files here of code that test this area of functionality. This is giving me green lights. Like, isn't that great? Follow this model. I think sometimes it's just they haven't been introduced to it and they haven't learned it yet. So I think it's like you can help change the culture by kind of planting those seeds there.
1: And uh, th- that's that's exactly right. And one of the examples or inspirations that I want to give to your, to your listeners is that Chef, uh, which is a large set of software and large uh, set of uh, engineers, we do not have a QE function within our organization. Every engineer is responsible for writing their tests and making sure that they pass as the as the code gets not only initially built, but also later on when new things are changing, et cetera. We do have some separate uh, end-to-end and system testing kind of, uh, and that is automated too. But for all the other tests, unit tests or integration tests, the developers themselves are responsible writing their tests and making sure they pass so and we have actually accomplished that it's a uh, it's a proud thing about chef that i can say that there's some inspiration for all the listeners
0: yeah no offense to all the qa engineers out there listening so (laughs) no offense (laughs) at all
1: but uh you all are coders too in my mind yeah
0: yeah that's true so a couple quick last questions uh is there a non-software related book that you find yourself recommending to peers on a regular basis
1: what Customers Crave is one of my favorites. It, it's really about how to delight your customers. Well, it, it's not about just giving them the bare minimum and saying, here, this will do the job for you. It is about what they crave. They crave those little adrenaline hits when they see some button where they expect it to be or the, uh, or the system behaving the right way, et cetera. So that's a fantastic book. It's not a strictly software book, but it's about what you can be doing to help your customers. Uh, really achieve what they want.
0: Excellent. I'll definitely include a link to that for everybody in the show notes. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online?
1: I am SJV ready on uh, most social media, SJV ready. So uh, they're welcome to hang out. Well,
0: it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable Suit here. Thank you so much for joining us and talking shop.
1: Thank you, Robbie. Likewise, it was a pleasure talking to you.